Welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Picture this, a secluded compound in the heart of Texas, a charismatic leader who claims to be the Lamb of God, stockpiles of weapons, and a fervent belief that the end of the world is nigh. It's not the plot of a Hollywood blockbuster. It's the bizarre and gripping story of the Branch Davidians and the infamous Waco incident. Buckle up, dear listeners, because today we're delving deep into a world where religious fervor meets Armageddon, where questions of freedom and authority collide, and where truth is as elusive as the Texas wind. Welcome to a tale that's anything but ordinary. Welcome to the world of the Branch Davidians and Waco. This is Scarlet Tavern. Before we begin, we must announce we must announce that due to personal reasons, Aaron will no longer be with the Scarlet Tavern. We do wish him the best of luck in all his future endeavors. Um, ben and I obviously will be continuing the Scarlet Tavern, and we will occasionally be including some guest appearances. I know that on a few occasions if she so wishes and the topic is up her alley ben's wife pam will join us on a few um another former military law enforcement officer um and yeah we'll have other people from uh damn media come in every once in a while if if they wish so but for now you guys are stuck with me and Ben. So, um, as the intro stated, we are talking about the Branch Davidians and Waco. Um, big topic. Yeah. So really our topic is technically Waco, but you can't talk about Waco without talking about the Branch Davidians. So we will go over the history of the Branch Davidians and then go into the history of Waco. Um, so, yeah, I guess let's go ahead and get into it. Let's do it. All right. In 1929, Victor Hutef, a Bulgarian immigrant and Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath school teacher from Southern California, claimed that he had a new message for the entire Adventist church. He presented his views in a book, The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. The Adventist leadership rejected Hutef's views as contrary to the church's basic teachings, and local church congregations disfellowshipped Hutef and his followers. In 1934, Hutef established his headquarters to the west of Waco, Texas, and his group became known as the Davidians. In 1942, he renamed the group the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Davidian, which indicated its belief in the, restoric, in the restoration of the Davidic Kingdom of Israel. Following Hutef's death in 1955, his wife Florence usurped the leadership, believing herself to be a prophet. Convinced that an apocalypse would occur in 1959, a date which is not found in her husband's original writings, 
Florence and her council gathered hundreds of their faithful followers at the Mount Carmel Center, the group's compound, which was late, which was located near Waco, for the fulfillment of the prophecy, which is written in Ezekiel 9. The anticipated events did not occur, and following this disappointment, Benjamin Rodin formed another group, which he called the Branch Davidians, and succeeded in taking control of Mount Carmel. The name of this group is an allusion to the anointed branch mentioned in Zechariah 3.8 and 6.12. When Benjamin Rodin died in 1978, he was succeeded by his wife, Lois Rodin. Members of the Branch Davidians were torn between allegiance to Ben's wife or to his son, George. After Lois died, George assumed the right to the presidency. However, less than a year later, Vernon Howell rose to power and became the leader over those in the group who sympathized with him. Howell's arrival at Mount Carmel in 1981 was well received by nearly everyone at the Davidian Commune. He engaged in an affair with Lois Roden while he was in his early 20s and she was in her late 60s. That is disgusting. Howell wanted to father a child with her, who, according to his understanding, would be the chosen one. When she died, George Roden inherited the positions of prophet and leader of the sect. A power struggle ensued between Roden and Howell, who soon gained the loyalty of the majority of the Davidians. In 1984, Howell and his followers left Mount Carmel, Roden accused Howell of starting a fire that consumed a $500,000 administration building and press, which Roden subsequently renamed Rodenville. It's a horrible name. Another splinter group led by Charlie Pace also left and settled in Alabama. Rodenville. That uh, Rodentville. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this this is speaking of Hollywood, this is sounding almost like a really weird backwards version of game of thrones you've got people family members vying for power of religious order dude dude trying to get get in the hots for grandma it's like what the frig welcome to game of thrones yes (laughs) maybe it's a good thing some of these people settled in alabama um let's not tell george r R. martin about this he might try and write another write more crap books about it as an attempt to regain support roden challenged howell to raise the dead going so far as to exhume the corpse of a two-decades-deceased Davidian in order to demonstrate his spiritual supremacy. Roden denied this, saying he had only been moving the community cemetery. This illegal act gave Howell an opportunity to attempt to file charges against Roden, but he was told that he needed evidence in order to substantiate the charges. On November 3, 1987, Howell and seven of his followers raided Mount Carmel, equipped with five... Two two-three caliber semi-automatic rifles, two twenty-two caliber rifles, and two twelve-gauge shotguns, and nearly four hundred rounds of ammunition, and an apparent attempt to retake the compound. Although Howell's group claimed that it was trying to obtain evidence of Roden's illegal activities, its members did not take a camera with them. Yeah, evidence. A trial ended with the jury finding Howell's followers not guilty but the jury members were unable to agree on a verdict for Howell himself. After his followers were acquitted, Howell invited the prosecutors to Mount Carmel for ice cream. I wonder if they have caramel there. Caramel, Mount Carmel, caramel ice cream? Yeah. 
It is claimed that Howell was never authorized to name his breakaway sect the Branch Davidians, and the church which bears the name continues to represent the members of the Branch Church who did not follow him. Howell, who acquired the position of spiritual leader from Rodin, asserted it by changing his name to what we know now as David Koresh, suggesting that he had ties to the biblical King David and Cyrus the Great. Koresh is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus. He wanted to create a new lineage of world leaders. This practice later served as the basis for allegations that Koresh was committing child abuse, which contributed to the siege by the ATF that we'll get into later. Um, interpreting Revelation 5-2, Koresh identified himself with the lamb mentioned therein. And so I will say Revelations 5 Two. Hold on, let me get to the actual thing. Uh, then I saw a mighty angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This being breaking the, the 66 seals. There's a lot more than that, but 66 that we know of. Um, 66 seals to start the coming of the end times um so he identifies himself as the one to help break the seals which in biblically um the seals are or at least are supposed to start being broken by G the second coming of jesus himself um, the lamb is referencing Jesus Christ. So Koresh suggested that the lamb would come before Jesus and pave the way for his second coming. Well, I mean, he can't, I, I, I don't think he would have really gotten too far if he outright said, I'm Jesus. Yeah. So he's claiming that the lamb was not Jesus, but he was the lamb and was paving the way for Jesus to come and start the start Armageddon, basically. <coughs> um, after the death of Lois Roden in November 1986 and probate of her estate in January 1987, Howell attempted to gain control of Mount Carmel Center by force. George Roden had dug up the casket of Anna Hughes from the Davidian Cemetery and had challenged Howell to a resurrection contest to prove who was the rightful heir to the leadership. Howell instead went to the police and claimed Roden was guilty of corpse abuse, but the county prosecutors refused to file charges without proof. Um, this is where we're kind of transitioning into Waco. Um, on November 3rd, 1987, Howell and seven armed companions tried to get into the Mount Carmel Chapel, intending to photograph the body in the casket as incriminating evidence. Roden was informed of the interlopers and opened fire. The Sheriff's Department responded about 20 minutes into the gunfight during which Roden had been wounded. Sheriff Harwell got Howell on the phone and told him to stop shooting and surrender. Howell and his companions, dubbed the Rodenville Eights by the media, were tried for attempted murder on April 12, 1988. Seven were acquitted and the jury hung on Howell's verdict. The county prosecutors did not press the case further. At this point, they are just wanting to wash their hands of this not get into the cult business and hopefully be done and over with can't say i blame them i mean this is bizarre first you're digging up a body say hey do it raise it 
Next thing you know, you got a gunfight at, yeah. at a church in a, what I'm assuming church property. Yeah, this, is, mean, this on is on the property. This is in Mount Carmel, so this 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 is crazy. I don't blame the prosecutors for not wanting any of this. I mean, you're just weighing into it. I mean, no one really got hurt. Well, Roden got hurt, but he doesn't matter to them. Yeah, I mean, really, realistically, he's a, he's these a are just a, of a cult. They don't care. Yeah, I mean, for what I understand, and again, please, viewers out there, forgive me, forgive my ignorance. The way I understand it, in terms of like the hierarchy of the Bible Belt Christians, it's I'm Catholic myself, so I don't. I am. We are completely separate from this whole thing. Um, Seventh Day Adventists and all their subsequent little branches there. are like they're like even the most hardcore Methodist Baptist just don't want anything to do with these guys. They're just like, oh no. They're they're all decided to start shooting each other. What a tragedy. So, so I will say the theology of the Seventh day Adventist Church resembles that of Protestant Christianity, combining elements of Lutheran, uh, Wesleyan, Arminian, and Anabaptist branches of Protestantism. Um, they believe in the infallibility of Scripture and teaches that salvation comes from grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then they have the 28 fundamental beliefs in there. Um, basically, you... there. So there's some distinctive doctrines which different... Dif differentiate from other Christian churches like the perpetuity of the seventh day Sabbath state of unconsciousness and death conditional immorality an atoning ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly, heavenly sanctuary and an investigative judgment that commenced in 1844 um, but yeah so they they have they're very big on the end times very much so. They're it's all fire and brimstone. The the end times are here. The rapture. I mean, anybody's ever out there heard some of those? Uh, I don't know, prophets or whatever the heck they're called, guys. I remember what was it, Caleb? Was it like what like back in 2014 or something? Some Seventh Day Adventist or some Christian scholar. I'm using air quotes here. He thought he mathematically predicted the end of the world. Yeah. And he, like, he was able to convince people to just, like, it's coming on this day. And, like, people were, like, selling their property. Like, people who had stocks were, like, just liquidating everything. And they were going to, like, you know, I, I remember I read something where, like, this, these two families who were neighbors, they just decided, let's go to the Grand Canyon. We're going to get raptured at the Grand Canyon. And they got there, like nothing happened it was just like those kind of, that's kind of the people who generally from what i understand are kind of gravitate toward the the seventh day adventist um denomination so i will i will go over like the just so people can kind of get the idea the some of the doctrines of the seventh day adventist um number one that God is the sovereign creator, upholder, and ruler of the universe. That he is eternal, omnipotent, omni uh, omniscient, and omnipresent. Two, that the Godhead, the Trinity, comprises God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three, that the scriptures are 
the inspired revelation of God to men and that the Bible is the sole rule of faith and practice. Four, that Jesus Christ is very God and that he has existed with the Father from all eternity. Five, that the Holy Spirit is a personal being sharing the attributes of deity with Father and the Son. Six, that Christ, the Word of God, became incarnate through miraculous conception of the virgin birth and that he lived an absolutely sinless life here on earth. Not true. Um, because if you go according to the Bible, uh, anger is sin and Jesus became angry. So that would mean he did not go a sinless life. The, the Bible does rules anger as sin. Um, I think they say wrath. Like oh, wrath. No, no, no. No, is, no anger. Say, anger is sin. Um, I thought it was always wrath. Well, we don't need to. That's that's fine. I mean, I don't want to get off into a biblical discussion. But yeah, it, it's but, because you're supposed to be slow to anger and blah, blah, blah. Um, that the vicarious atoning death of Jesus Christ once for all is all sufficient for the redemption of a lost race. That Jesus Christ arose literally and bodily from the grave. That he ascended literally and bodily into heaven. That he now serves as our advocate and priestly ministry and mediation before the Father. That he will return in a premillennial personal imminent second event. That man was created sinless, but by a subsequent fall entered the state of alienation and depravity. That salvation through Christ is by grace alone, through faith in his blood. That entrance upon the new life in Christ is by regeneration or the new birth. That man is justified by faith. That man is sanctified by the indwelling Christ through the Holy Spirit. That man will be glorified at the resurrection or translation of the saints when the Lord returns. That there will be a judgment of all men and that the gospel is to be preached as a witness to all the world. Some of those are different than normal christianity um so most evangelical protestants believe that number 11 that he will return in a preliminal personal imminent second event it's different um but yeah so because different protestant groups viewed the millennium different um but yeah so Seventh-day Adventists are very much end times, uh, fire, brimstone kind of people. More They're so very hardcore. The they can be very hardcore. So, um, even with all the effort to bring the casket to court, the standing judge refused to use it as evidence for the case. Judge Herman Fitz ruled that the courtroom is no place for a casket when defense attorney Gary Coker requested it to be used as evidence for the case. During questions about the casket, Roden admitted to attempting to resurrect Dane Hughes on three occasions. Rodenville 8 were forced to carry the casket down the street to a van awaiting the body. While waiting for the trial, Roden was put in jail under contempt of court charges because of his use of foul language in some court pleadings. <gasps> what a pastor he is. Um, he threatened the Texas court with sexually transmitted diseases. And the court ruled in Howell's favor. <laughs> Reverend. He's he's like, I have crabs, I'm gonna give them to all of you. <laughs> I've slept with so many women. Um yeah, well, and that's children. It. That's... Yeah. Alongside these charges, Roden was jailed for six months for legal motions he filed with explicit language. 
Roden faced 90 days in jail for living on the property after being ordered to neither live on the property nor call himself the leader of the religious group in a 1979 case. The next day, Perry Jones and several of Howell's other followers moved from their headquarters in Palestine, Texas to Mount Carmel. Uh, in mid-1989, Roden used an axe to kill a Davidian uh, named Wayman Dale Adair, who visited him to discuss Adair's alleged vision of being God's chosen Messiah. He was found guilty under an insanity defense and was committed to a mental hospital. Shortly after Roden's commitment, Howell raised money to pay off all the back taxes on Mount Carmel owed by Roden and took legal control of the property. After these legal proceedings, it was noted in a 90-minute interview by the Davidians' attorney, Douglas Wayne Martin, that the religious group had been back and forth to court since 1955. So, we have Howell taking over, David Koresh taking over, you have Rodin, the old leader, kills a man with an axe, and then just gets to plead insane and not have to deal with the consequences. I mean, that's a... In the words of Ron Burgundy, that escalated quickly. You went from filing foul-mouthed uh, court proceeding motions to killing a guy. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I think it's safe to say this guy isn't really a prophet. No. On August 5th, 1989, Howell released the New Light audio tape in which he said that God told him to procreate with the women in the group to establish a house of David of his special people. This involves separating married couples in the group who had to agree that only he could have sexual relations with the wives while the men should observe celibacy. Howell also said that God had told him to start building an army for God to prepare for the end days and a salvation for his followers. So, this man goes to his group and says, God told me to sleep with all of you women. Man, you are not allowed to sleep with your wives. Only I can. You have to remain celibate so that I can impregnate them and they can have my children. I'm just amazed that he actually found people to agree to this. See, I would have been out the door. I'd be like, bye. But, but this is a thing that we talk about when we talk about cults, because again, yes, we're talking about Waco and this bad stuff, because this does lead to terrorist stuff, but this is obviously, first and foremost, they, the Brain Civilians are a cult, and again, this is where, number one, you, they're pulling from the Seventh-day Adventists, who are so hardcore biblical that they see any anybody tells them that they're a prophet they'll believe it i could walk into a seventh-day adventist church and put on a ruse and they'll believe i'm the second coming of christ mm-hmm. um so but on top of that again with every cult they these people have nothing they're desperate and they follow the charismatic leader. And by all accounts, David Koresh was very charismatic. I um, remember watching the, um, I think it was Paramount did a mini series on it. It was based on a book that was written by one of the survivors. And if that's, you're right, if that's anything to go by, like Koresh was very 
he could be like at first you knew him you could be very very easy to get along with like he seemed like really cool again this that this is written from the perspective of somebody who more or less used to worship him yeah (laughs) um and i will say i believe that criminal minds did an episode based off of waco and based off of the branch davidians if i remember correctly oh i'm sure they did i'm sure they mean criminal minds covered just about everything yeah so um howell filed a petition in the california state superior court in pomona on may 5th 1990 to legally change his name for publicity and business purposes to david koresh on august 28th he was granted the petition by 1992, most of the land belonged to the group had been sold except for a core 77 acres. Most of the buildings had been removed or were being salvaged for construction materials to convert much of the main chapel and its hall water tank into apartments for the resident members of the group. Many of the members of the group had been involved with the Davidians for a few generations and many had large families, presumably all child by David Koresh. Um, on February 27th, 1993, I wasn't even a year old yet, the Waco, Waco Tribune Herald began publishing The Sinful Messiah, a series of articles by Mark England and Darlene McCormick, who reported allegations that Koresh had physically abused children in the compound and had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides. Koresh was also said to advocate polygamy for himself and declared himself married to several female residents of the small community. Paper claimed that Koresh had announced he was entitled to at least 140 wives, and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in the group as his, that he had fathered at least a dozen children, and that some of these mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13 years old. This is what happens when you let somebody have way too much power. Yes. Now, one of the... And what happens with a lot of these guys is they take a lot of stuff from the Bible. Now, again, whether it's right or wrong is neither here nor there at this point. But in biblical times, it was common for people to get married at 13, 14 years old girls were given up for marriage at 13 and 14 um and that was a societal norm yeah yeah and biblically from what we know of whether you believe the bible's true or not biblically what we know of mary is when she married joseph she was between 14 and 16 Possibly. I, well, you know, I'm not sure that I remember just learning from in religious class. They never really touched on how old Mary yeah, was. They, and he, uh, they probably went, for good reason. Yeah, they it's and that's why uh, historians went back and did a lot of the like dating and stuff of how old she would have to be. And they were saying by basically for her to physically be able to, to have a child uh up to the time she died the average age they did all that mathematical factoring and they figured that 
she was between 14 and 16 years old when she's mentioned in the of Bible. course as yes of course obviously for everyone listening this all of it is speculation there's no birth certificate of mary Correct. there's not there is none of this we're going off of what we what historians and scholars know about the social norms and everything and obviously just basic biology so they said oh yeah she had to she would have been 14 15 that's the minimum age oh yeah for all we know mary was 32 obviously i don't think that's it but God, it's but at the no same way. time no, no absolutely not not, not, when, but... not when they were barely living the 60s some of them exactly so yeah and no, she it's... she lived well into jesus's adulthood I mean, she lived after his adulthood. So, so I mean, so nobody is saying that she was 14 or 15. That's just the bare. Um, so in addition to allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct, Koresh's followers were suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. In May 1992, Chief Deputy Daniel Weinberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department, I know where that is, called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, our beloved ATF that we love so much. Oh, yes, <laughs> we love the ATF. All hail the ATF. To notify them that his office had been contacted by a local UPS representative concerned about a report by a local driver. The UPS driver said a package had broken open on delivery to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing at least half a dozen grenades. He also noted that the compound had been receiving packages from an arms dealer for months. On June 9th, the ATF opened a... F Go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, sorry. I thought I didn't know who you were talking to. Um, so, it should be noted that if you look at the pictures of what the... Um, what the UPS driver actually saw, he didn't actually see hand grenades per se. What he saw was hand grenade shells. These were just the the shell, the hand grenade shells without the explosive anything added yeah. to it. So what they suspected was that the Branch Davidians and David Crash were making their own hand grenades. They were just simply buying the hand grenade shells. And then, of course, they dug deeper and realized that a lots of guns have been going to the into the compound so and for those that don't know the way a grenade works is you basically have a shell which is what you're typically see usually in the case of the military green a green shell um that is usually double walled um and then you have black powder uh, or some other, depending on the grenade, some other type of igniter inside. And then what what you see in the movies and things where people are holding down a trigger and pulling a pin, th what that trigger is connected to that goes straight into the grenade, that is called the grenade core. That basically has a a fuse and an igniter in it that is basically set on a timer you pull the pin and the second you let go from that trigger it starts a countdown again the the time is different with each grenade i believe typically it's three to five seconds um from the time you l you let go of the of the handle 
it will it then explodes so what they are doing is they are getting these shells these shells are being shipped to them and then they are more than likely packing it with their own black powder or some other type of igniter and then putting their own cores in very easy to be honest back then very easy those cores were easy to get they're not now the atf has really regulated all that stuff and because honestly this this is yeah and and this isn't an endorsement of the atf but honestly this one i can honestly understand i mean nobody everyone's my firm belief everybody has the right to bear arms in this country guns not not hand grenades i don't need a hand grenade I have nine years of military law enforcement experience. I have I was a Mark 19 grenade launcher gunner. I'm certified in 12 different weapons. I do not own a grenade. Nobody does. I have about seven years, about just under Caleb's. And yeah, I mean, I threw a dumber grenade once in training, and I and everyone was like, "Man, I didn't get to throw a grenade." I was happy. I didn't. Get to throw a grenade. I did not want to throw a grenade. See, I was scared to death. Although I, I love doing the two hundred three. There's nothing like oh, shooting fun. a two hundred three. For those that I don't know, threw my shoulder out. M two hundred three is a grenade launcher that's mounted to the bottom of a weapon, usually an M sixteen or an M four. Nowadays, it's an M four, um, and it basically takes a grenade. Uh, you load it into the tube and you fire it, projectiles, shoots. Um, everybody in the military is trained on how to fire M203 grenade launchers. They are a ton of fun. Uh, when you are training, you actually get to use what's called Cheeto rounds. Um, which yeah, the Cheeto they, rounds. They are blue tip rounds that are training rounds. And they're called Cheeto rounds because when they explode, they puff out orange paint. And it looks like Cheeto dust. Um, so, and those are actually legal to own because they don't do any damage. Um, but yeah, so no, nobody should own grenades um, unless you are a active member of special forces, things like that. But even then, all of that's regulated. All of those kind of things are kept on base in an armory very well counted trust me you don't want to go to an armory um yeah you will be there for six hours um but yeah so again we we firmly believe in the right to bear arms in this house alone i have a plethora of guns um and but yeah, I I do not own a grenade launcher. A grenade. I will never own a grenade. It's not needed. Do I own smoke bombs? Maybe. Just kidding. Um, better those better not be going off around my stuff. <laughs> um. All right. So on June 9th, the ATF ATF opened a formal investigation, and a week later, it was classified as sensitive thereby calling for a high degree of oversight from both Houston and headquarters. The document, the documentary Inside Waco claims that the investigation started when in 1992 the ATF became concerned over reports of automatic gunfire coming from the Carmel compound. On July 30th, ATF agents David Aguilera and Skinner 
visited the Branch Davidians gun dealer, Henry McMahon, who tried to get them to talk with Koresh on the phone. Koresh offered to let ATF inspect the Branch Davidians' weapons and paperwork and asked to speak with Aguilera, but Aguilera declined. First mistake. First mistake by the ATF. You are investigating a man for having illegal arms. He is willing to speak to you and show you everything, and you decline it. I mean, you could very well also just show up with a warrant to search. Yeah. But, I mean, you but, said he, he can invite you and be like, I'll show you this. We'll just show ourselves around. You can do that. Yeah. It's kind of a dick the, move, but, but you the, can do it. But the fact that he offered to speak with them, this all probably... Could it have ended differently? Maybe. Where if he if Aguilera would have just said, All right, let's talk. Let's let's sit down, let's meet, show me your stuff, then we'll talk. Maybe these ATF agents could have convinced him to get rid of his at least his explosives. This is Texas. It is a right to carry state, even back then. Um, you are allowed to have numerous firearms. It's one of the great things about mm. Texas. Um, God bless Texas. Yeah, and Kentucky and Ohio. Yep, yep, uh, absolutely. Ben and Pam cannot wait to get here so they can legally carry. Because New I York, just want to get to. I just want to go to that restaurant you took me to for brunch. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I think it would have been a lot different if they had just talked. You're right, and I think it's also important to let our viewers know that something also happened just before this investigation started. So, we talked about before in our last episode about uh, Ruby Ridge, how that whole debacle was really kind of started. The root of it was the ATF as well. They paid a they they had a paid informant, not an agent, a paid undercover informant, more or less entice, coerce, or however you want to label it. Uh, Randy Weaver to commit a legal act and then they use that to try and leverage Randy Weaver and that just snowballed into what we became known as the Ruby Ridge incident. So, but not long before Waco investigation got started, our congressional hearings and investigations had actually concluded that the original fault of the Ruby Ridge, part of the blame was on the ATF. Rightfully so. So, one of the main motivators that that if again if you watch the siege of Waco on Paramount, what they allude to is that the ATF was looking for a win. They needed a win to show that we we are actually the good guys and we can you know do our jobs correctly. So they chose more or less. They kind of started figuring out. Let's go to the David Koresh and the Branch Davidian. Here's a religious nutcase in their eyes, who is stockpiling weapons, and now we just found out he's got grenades. Let's go get them. So, but like Caleb said, they could have very easily resolved this, but I personally feel at this point, uh, as the old saying goes, peace was never really on the table. That was never an option. They wanted a victory, and they were going to get it come hell or high water. Yeah. So Sheriff Harwell told reporters regarding, re, regarding law enforcement talking with Koresh, just go out and talk to them what's wrong when notifying them. The ATF began surveillance from a house across the road from the compound several months before the siege. 
Their cover was noticeably poor. The college students, quote-unquote, were in their 30s, had new cars, were not registered at the local schools, and did not keep a schedule that would fit any legitimate employment or classes. Also, let everyone know, if you ever there, if you ever look at the photos of this house there, I don't know what it looks like now, because I think Waco has done a lot of development in the time in that area. Uh, but at the time, literally, you had this compound in Mount Carmel, you had the compound, and right across is this really reeky-dink, abandoned-looking cabin. It yeah. looked like it was from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and two like dudes, like I said, exactly. And then literally, like they said, two college students move in, blah, blah, blah. It, it, they knew, the, the, the people in the compound knew, like, cops? Cops, yeah, cops. Yeah. Well, so the investigation included sending an undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez, whose identity Koresh learned, though he chose not to reveal the fact until the day of the raid. Um, the ATF obtained a search warrant on suspicion that the Davidians were modifying guns to have a legal automatic fire capability. Former Branch Davidian Mark Baraltz claimed that Koresh had M16 lower receiver parts, combining M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15 lower receiver is, according to ATF regulations, constructive possession of an unregistered machine gun regulated in the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986. Um, I've built guns. Uh, my uncle is vice president of a gun company. Um, I have the ability to obtain these parts. However, I will not have a unregistered automatic rifle. Um, and one thing I want to make abundantly clear to everybody. AR does not stand for automatic rifle. No. AR is the initials of the manufacturer. It's it's Armalite. It's an Armalite rifle. That is what the AR stands for. All of these politicians and everything saying that an AR-15 is an automatic rifle. It is not. There are two different versions of everything, okay? So, the milit you have you have the M16. The M16 is has been used in our military for decades. Um, full full stock it has the ability to go fully automatic. It's one of the best parts of firing, and M16 is the ability to put it full automatic. Um, and then you have the M4, which military and law enforcement uses. That has the ability to go fully automatic. An AR-15, in its normal capabilities, the way it's designed, an AR-15 is only semi-automatic. You must combine it with other parts, such as an M16 component, an M4 component, to make it fully automatic. Air 15, as it sits, is a semi-automatic weapon. Just putting that out there. Um, so the ATF used an affidavit filed by Special Agent David Aguilera to obtain the search and arrest warrant that led to the Waco siege. The official filing date of this affidavit was February 25th, 1993. 
Allegedly, the initial investigation began in June 1992 when a postal worker informed a sheriff of McLennan County that he believed he had been delivering explosives to the ammo gun store uh, owned and operated by the Branch Davidians. Of course, now that we're getting into Waco, we're kind of backtracking, but uh, the store named the Mag Bag had been identified by the said postal worker as suspicious in deliveries. This postal worker continued deliveries to the Mount Carmel Center and reports seeing occupied observation posts in the affidavit. It says that he believed there were armed personnel at these observation posts. The McLennan County Sheriff's was notified in May and June of that year of two cases of inert grenades, black gunpowder, 90 pounds of powdered aluminum metal, and 30 to 40 cardboard tubes. Furthermore, the sheriff noticed another shipment of 60 AR-15-M16 magazines, to which Aguilera made the statement, I have been involved in many cases where defendants following a relatively simple process convert AR-15 semi-automatic rifles to fully automatic rifles of the nature of the M16 to justify the ATF's involvement in the case. In November 1992, a local farmer reported to the sheriff that he had heard machine gun fire. By the sound of it, he said it was likely a 50 caliber machine gun and multiple M16s. The farmer claims he was very familiar with machine guns, having done a tour overseas in the U.S. Army. Now, if this farmer truly was in the Army, there's no mistaking the sound of a 50 caliber machine gun. You'd hear that for miles. That It's one of my favorite sounds. Uh, uh, oh. Aside from the sound of the turrets on like a warthog. Because there's nothing like that. Just that spin up. Um, so it, it's very possible you would you would you would hear this stuff for miles. The affidavit closed with Aguilera verifying the story via interviews made with the associated parties in the gun shops from which the mag bag purchased items. Among these items were over 45 AR-15 upper receivers and 5 M16 upper receivers, which Aguilera annotated. These kit contain all the parts of an M16 except for the low receiver unit, which is the firearm by lawful definition, admitting that neither the noise complaints nor the items were necessarily illegal. And this is true. State of Texas, it's not illegal to especially on private property it's not illegal to fire weapons um so the noise isn't going to do anything unless you're violating a noise ordinance um and then again i can buy as many upper receivers as i want but the second i buy a lower receiver that's going to be flagged because that is the firearm that is where your firing pins are located that is all your mechanisms needed to fire a weapon are all in the lower receiver. The upper receiver is simply your sights, your barrel, and all of that. Um, everything necessary for a firearm is in your lower receiver. Using the affidavit filed by Aguilera that alleged that the Davidians had violated federal law, the ATF obtained search and arrest warrants for Koresh and specific followers on weapons charges, citing the many firearms that they had accumulated I can't talk tonight the search warrant commanded a search on or before February 28th 1993 
in the daytime between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. ATF made a claim that Koresh was possibly operating a methamphetamine lab to establish a drug nexus and obtain military assets under the war on drugs. So this is completely out of the box. There is no I, really, evidence supporting a meth lab. It, it really feels like they were all like just writing up the all the warrants and they were just like, yeah, yeah, that could that's possibly do it. We we've seen other meth labs with this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that, totally possible. And that is exactly what they were doing they so we'll see in a second that there were delivery of chemical instruments and glassware guess what they operated a school on the property the school teaches science that's more than likely what it was used for now am i saying that they were not cooking meth we don't know and we never will because of what happens but just because they have chemicals instruments and glassware does not mean that they are cooking meth i can order all of those things and guess what it's legal yep they just added meth onto this so that they could get more support from other departments this Um, was a case of they were throwing everything at this and seeing what stuck exactly um Although the ATF's investigation focused on firearm violations, not on illegal drugs, the ATF requested assistance from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the DOD, the Department of Defense, citing a drug connection based on, one, a recent delivery to the compound of chemicals, instruments, and glassware, two, a written testimony from a former compound resident alleging Howell had told him that drug trafficking was a desirable way to raise money, and three, several current residents who had prior drug involvement. Four, two former residents who were incarcerated for drug trafficking crimes. And five, National Guard overflights thermal images showing a hot spot inside the compound, possibly indicating a methamphetamine laboratory. So, all that there. Let, let's go one by one. A recent delivery to the compound of chemical instruments and glassware. Again, this compound has a school. Anything. This compound has a school. Uh, these t- these children are educated. They it could be that they are teaching them lab stuff, and uh, there there is indication that there were very intelligent people there. So some of the teachers could be teaching chemistry and stuff like that. Um, a written testimony from a former compound resident alleging Howell had told him that drug trafficking was a desirable way to raise money. That's hearsay. Yeah. For all we know, this guy just had a grudge against David Koresh or somebody in there. And he maybe recalled uh, a late night, everybody standing up drinking or, well, I don't know if these guys actually drank, but late, doing whatever. They're just go- joking around and someone said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we got, you know, we raised money by selling drugs? And he used that. It's not technically yeah. a lie. Yeah, Dave, it's just not necessarily the truth. David Koresh rapes little girls. I'm sure he drank. Um, yeah, but no, but it would just be like Ben and I going, huh, what? We're not making much money off of this podcast. Wouldn't it be funny if we if we sold drugs? It, it's no different. It's the same thing. Um, like I said, did we talk, did we talk about selling drugs? Yeah, technically, is it that is that what we were doing? Is that actually what we were doing? 
No. And it's not illegal. It's freedom of speech. Yeah, that's not. Um, third, several current residents who had prior drug involvement. This is profiling at its finest. This is... I mean, let's remember, this is a religious... They're, they're wacky. They're weird. They're probably doing some shady stuff, but it, people join religious organizations to get yeah. away from their past. Exactly. Two former residents who were incarcerated for drug trafficking crimes. Again, probably former addicts who left and they went right back into what they were used to, drug trafficking. Um, five, the National Guard overflights thermal images showing a hotspot inside the compound. Showing possibly a meth lab. Could be any kind of lab. There's nothing saying what that hotspot is. There are tons of stuff can put off. That, that could have been the furnace. Yeah. Exactly. That could have been the furnace they were they were reading there. Exactly. Contrary to most people think, it does get cold in Texas. It does. Especially where they are. Um Although the original request for assistance was initially approved, the commander of the Special Forces Detachment questioned the request and the ATF obtained only a training site at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, from February 25th to February 27th with safety inspections for the training lanes and was given only medical and communications training and equipment. So, this is another place that they fuck up. They went to Fort Hood. (laughs) We all know how Fort Hood is. If you've never seen anything about Fort Hood, I highly suggest Googling recent activity at Fort Hood, Texas. You will see that Fort Hood is the worst base in the entire world. Yeah. There is horrible leadership. People go missing. People have been raped and murdered. And Fort Hood is literally the hood of the army bases. It is absolutely horrible. It changes now. It's also worth noting they thought, hey, let's fix everything by changing the name. So technically, it's actually called Fort Cavazos now, and not, but still. But not changing Fort anything Hood. else. Nobody will yeah. ever call that place yeah. anything but, but Fort Hood. Yeah. Um, ATF had planned their raid for Monday, March 1st, 1993, with the code name Showtime. So original. The ATF later claimed that the raid was moved up a day to February 28, 1993 in response to the Waco Tribune's Herald, Tribune Herald's The Sinful Messiah series of articles, which the ATF had tried to prevent from being published. Beginning February 1st, ATF agents had three meetings with the Tribune Herald staff regarding a delay in publication of The Sinful Messiah. Paper was told by the ATF that the raid would take place on February 22nd, which they changed to March 1st, then ultimately to an indefinite date. ATF agents felt the newspaper had held off publication at the request of the ATF for at least three weeks. In a February 24th meeting between Tribune Herald staff and ATF agent Philip Chojonki and two other agents, the ATF could not give the newspaper staff a clear idea of what action was planned or when. The Tribune Herald informed ATF that they were publishing the series, which included an editorial calling for local authorities to act. Personnel of the Tribune Herald found out about the imminent raid after the first installment of the Sinful Messiah had already appeared on February 27th. Although the ATF preferred to arrest Koresh when he was outside Mount Carmel, planners received inaccurate information that Koresh 
rarely left it. The Branch Davidian members were well-known locally and had cordial relations with other locals. Branch Davidians partly supported themselves by trading at gun shows and took care to have the relevant paperwork to ensure the transactions were legal. Branch Davidian Paul Fauda was a federal firearms licensed dealer, an FFL, um, and the group operated a retail gun business called the Magbag. When shipments for the Magbag arrived, they were signed for by Fada, Steve Schneider, or Koresh. The morning of the raid, Paul Fada and his son Kalani were on their way to Austin Gun Show to conduct business. The ATF attempted to execute their search warrant on Sunday morning, February 28, 1993. The local sheriff, in audio tapes broadcast after the incident, said he was not apprised of the raid. Despite being informed that the Branch Davidians knew a raid was coming, the ATF commander ordered that it go ahead, even though their plan depended on reaching the compound without the Branch Davidians being armed and prepared. Any advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX-TV reporter, who had been tipped off about the raid, asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier, who was coincidentally Koresh's brother-in-law. Oh boy. Yeah. So, needless to say, Koresh then told undercover ATF agent Robert Rodriguez that they knew a raid was imminent. Rodriguez had infiltrated the Branch Davidians and was astonished to find that his cover had been blown. The agent made an excuse and left the compound. When asked later what the Branch Davidians had been doing when he left the compound, Rodriguez replied, They were praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered select male followers to begin arming and taking up defensive positions while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told them he would try to speak to the agents and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. ATF arrived by 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel and SWAT-style tactical gear. ATF agents claimed that they heard shots coming from within the compound, while Branch Davidian survivors claimed that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. A suggested reason may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent, causing the ATF to respond with fire from automatic weapons. Other reports claim the first shots were fired by the ATF dog team, quote-unquote, sent to kill the dogs in the Branch Davidian kennel. Three helicopters of the Army National Guard were used as an aerial distraction and all took incoming fire. During the first shots, Koresh was wounded, shot in the hand and the stomach. When the minute of the raid start, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called emergency services pleading for them to stop shooting. Martin asked for a ceasefire and audio tapes record him saying, here they come again and that's them shooting, that's not us. The first ATF casualty was an agent who made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Agents quickly took cover and fired at the buildings while the helicopters began their diversion and swept into the low, in low over the complex. 350 feet away from the building. The Branch Davidians fired on the helicopters and hit them, although none of the crew members were injured. In response, the helicopter pilots chose to pull away from the compound and land. On the east side of the compound, agents brought out two ladders and set them against the side of the building. They then climbed onto the roof to secure it to reach Koresh's room and the location where they believed the weapons were stored. On the west slope of the roof, Three agents reached Koresh's window and were crouching beside it when they came under fire. One agent was killed and another wounded. The third agent clambered over the peak of the roof 
and joined other agents attempting to enter the armory. The window was smashed, a flashbang stun grenade was thrown in, and three agents entered the armory. When another tried to follow them, a hail of bullets penetrated the wall wound and wounded him, but he was able to reach a ladder and slide to safety. An agent fired a shotgun at Branch Davidians until he was hit in the head by return fire and killed. Inside the armory, the agents killed a Branch Davidian and discovered a cache of weapons, but subsequently came under heavy fire. Two were wounded. As they escaped, the third agent laid down covering fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As he made his escape, he hit his head on a wooden support beam and fell off the roof, but survived. An agent outside provided them with covering fire, but was shot by a Branch Davidian and killed instantly. Dozens of ATF agents took cover, many behind Branch Davidian vehicles, and exchanged fire with the Branch Davidians. The number of ATF wounded increased and an agent was killed by gunfire from the compound as agents were firing at a Branch Davidian perched on top of the water tower. The exchange of fire continued, but 45 minutes into the raid, the gunfire began to slow down as agents began to run low on ammo. Shooting continued for a total of two hours. It's a lot there. Yeah. I mean, my opinion, this could, I mean, the ATF, once they realize, hey, we've been compromised, this is when the operation should have been called off. You've lost the element of surprise. They even said we needed the element of surprise. But I also kind of personally feel once David Koresh realized, okay, the cops are coming here. Um, he made the very fatal mistake of arming his people. Yes. Like, we can have all our opinions about the ATF and were they justified, this, this, and that. But at the end of the day, they are law enforcement agents. They are the police. The pol- when the when you know the police are coming are coming to your home, guilt guilt in my opinion I'm sorry but guiltless people don't get guns. Yes, correct. you don't arm yourself. You don't be like take defensive positions. Why are you taking defensive we're not positions? In war. Yeah, we're not in a war. These yeah, may, I mean for what I understood, there were at least one or two lawyers in that that the Branch Davidian compound. They should have known. It's like. Uh, okay, they're probably coming here for the warrant. We we should just probably sit tightly and, you know, make sure we're all good here because everything's fine. So I I don't know what David Koresh thought was going to happen, but he, he he more or less sealed everybody's fate the moment he told every, he told people to get guns and take defensive positions. Because you've already... Now you've put them in a, in a defensive mind. Like, okay, we're going to fight. So... Whether the ATS slipped up and accidentally fired could very well have happened. I mean, it's a tense situation. Or maybe one of the Branch Davidians accidentally fired. But at the end of the day, you should have just sat down and just wait. Okay, yeah. they come, they've come here. Just let them go about their business. Exactly. You got a great lawsuit for later when they when they because if everything was on the up and up, which again every branch division that survived that that knew about the gun said they were all legally purchased, then yeah, okay, no yeah, and then if the ATF starts taking stuff, you sue them yeah. like every like every other God fearing tax paying American just sue the hell out of the government. Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department contacted the ATF and negotiated a ceasefire. 
Sheriff Harwell states in William Gazetsky's documentary, Waco, The Rules of Engagement, that the ATF agents withdrew only after they were out of ammunition. ATF agent Chuck Hustmeyer later wrote, About 45 minutes into the shootout, the volume of gunfire finally started to slacken. We were running out of ammunition. The Davidians, however, had plenty. In all, four ATF agents, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeon, and Conway Charles LeBlow, had been killed during the fight. Another 16 had been injured. After the ceasefire, the Branch Davidians followed the ATF dead and wounded to be evacuated and held their fire during the ATF retreat. The five Branch Davidians killed in the raid were Winston Blake, Peter Gentz, Peter Hipsman, and Perry Jones, and Jadine Wendell. Two were killed at the hands of Branch Davidians after having been wounded. Their bodies were buried on the grounds. Nearly six hours after the 1130 AMC's fire, Michael Schroeder was shot dead by ATF agents who alleged he had fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound with Woodrow Kendrick and Norman Allison. Alan A. Stone's report states that the Branch Davidians did not ambush the ATF and that they apparently did not maximize the kill of ATF agents, explaining that they were rather desperate religious fanatics expecting an apocalyptic ending in which they were destined to die defending their sacred ground and destined to achieve salvation. A 1999 federal report noted the violent tendencies of dangerous cults can be classified into two general categories, defensive violence and offensive violence. Defensive violence is utilized by cults to defend a compound or enclave that was created specifically to eliminate most contact with the dominant culture. The 1993 clash in Waco, Texas at the Branch Davidian Complex is an illustration of such defensive violence. History has shown that the group that groups that seek to withdraw from the dominant culture seldom act on their beliefs that the end time has come unless provoked. ATF agents established contact with Koresh and others inside the compound after they withdrew. The FBI took command soon after as the result of the deaths of federal agents playing Jeff Jamar, head of the Bureau of San Antonio Field Office, in charge of the siege as site commander. FBI hostage rescue team was headed by HRT commander Richard Rogers, who had previously been criticized for his actions during the Ruby Ridge incident. As at Ruby Ridge, Rogers often overrode the site commander at Waco and had mobilized both the blue and gold HRT tactical teams to the same site, which ultimately created pressure to resolve the situation tactically due to lack of HRT reserves. At first, the Davidians had telephone contact with local news media and Koresh gave phone interviews. FBI cut Davidian communication to the outside world for the next 51 days. Communication with those inside was, tele- was by telephone by a group of 25 FBI negotiators. The final Justice Department report found that negotiators criticized the tactical commanders for undercutting negotiations. So, here, once again... We have the same exact HRT commander that was at Ruby Ridge that fucked up at Ruby Ridge that is now mm-hmm. here and fucking up once again. Yep. And just from that brief description, I got the very classic adage. We've got too many chefs in the kitchen. We have tw- I mean, 25 negotiators. Good God. That's almost a law firm. Yeah. I mean, good God. I mean, 
Like, why? It just see. It seems like the FBI was just so desperate to throw. They just threw everybody at the situation. No, I bet you there was no guidance from Washington. The attorney general probably was just saying, "Get it done. Get it done. Get it done." I believe Janet Reno was the the attorney general at this point. Correct. I believe under the and yeah. Clinton was president. Yeah, so this is this is probably I would say ultimately a lot of this falls on Janet Reno because she's the one in charge of the Justice Department, which is in charge of the FBI. Correct. You, I mean, this this sounds like I mean the way I've always understood it in a siege. In a federally in a siege thing, the tactical commanders are subordinate to the site commanders, which it, which are a lot of times often defer to the negotiators. When the negotiators like, okay, we're not getting anywhere. This guy ain't ain't budging. He's about to go kill some people. Tactical, go in. Correct. But it it seems like there just never was a clear definition of who's authority where one's authority ended and where another's began yeah um so in the first few days the fbi believed that they had made a breakthrough when they negotiated with koresh an agreement that the branch davidians would peacefully leave the compound and return for a message recorded by koresh being broadcast on national radio the broadcast was made, but Koresh then told negotiators that God had told him to remain in the building and wait. Despite this, soon afterwards, negotiators managed to facilitate the release of 19 children ranging in age from 5 months to 12 years old without their parents. However, 98 people remained in the building. The children were then interviewed by the FBI and Texas Rangers, some for hours at a time. Allegedly, the children had been physically and sexually abused long before the standoff. This was the key justification offered by the FBI, both to then-President Bill Clinton and Attorney General Janet Reno, for launching tear gas attacks to force the Branch Davidians out of the compound. Okay, so this here. This is the one thing that they did right, is because they waited to use tear gas till the children were out. These children are innocent. We don't need any crossfire. We don't need any harm coming to them. So they then did tear gas when they were out. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't sooner. But I, And again, this is only the first few days of the 51-day siege. Um, so... During the siege, the FBI sent a video camera to the Branch Davidians. In the videotape made by Koresh's followers, Koresh introduces children and his wives to the FBI negotiators, including several minors who claim to have had babies fathered by Koresh. Koresh had fathered perhaps 14 of the children who stayed with him in the compound. Several Branch Davidians made statements in the video. On day 9, Monday, March 8th, the Branch Davidians sent out the videotape to show the FBI that there were no hostages, but everyone was staying inside on their own free will. This video also included a message from Koresh. The negotiator's log showed that when the tape was reviewed, there was concern that the tapes released in the media would gain sympathy for Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Videos also showed the 23 children still inside the compound and child care professionals on the outside prepared to take care of those children as well as the previous 19 released. As the siege continued, Koresh negotiated for more time, allegedly so that he could write religious documents he needed to complete before surrendering. 
His conversation, which were dense with biblical imagery, alienated the federal negotiators who treated the situation as a hostage crisis. Among themselves, the negotiation teams took to calling Crush's words Bible babble. Um, and now what they're about to do is what they should have done at the beginning. Uh, on March 7th, the FBI began consulting with Bible scholars Philip Arnold and James Tabor. Um, for those that don't know, James Tabor is has done quite a bit in uh, writing for uh, religious stuff. So um, he's a professor of ancient Judaism and early Christianity. Uh, he wrote about the Apostle Paul. Um, he has analysis during, about suicide and martyrdom, which is why he was brought into this. And then he actually published a book based off of Waco. Um, so, and then he has an entire series called the Jesus dynasty. So he, he is a decent name in the religious world. Um, so they studied a transcript of Koresh's radio broadcast to try to understand Koresh's theology. That week, Arnold and Tabor were guests on talk radio programs on Dallas radio stations, KRLB and KGBS. Crush heard the programs on a battery-powered radio. On March 16th, he asked for the FBI permission to discuss the Bible with Arnold directly. The FBI denied this request. Mistake again. Denying the request. What, what you have to understand when doing Haas's negotiation is it's a give and take. You need to give them something in order for you to take something from them. He just wanted to talk to this guy. This guy probably could have connected with him and gotten him to stand down or release more people. But they refused. Uh, yeah, I'm sure in their mind, they again, as we said, as you said before, the FBI is treating this as like as though David Koresh is walking around the compound with a sawed-off shotgun holding everybody keeping everybody inside these people want to stay inside yeah they were not his hostages they were so they treated as though david koresh is a madman lunatic who's finally snapped and he's holding like uh, a lobby a bank lobby full of people hostage this was not necessarily the case correct this was these were his followers these were his family are they hostages in the sense of that, okay, yeah, they, they're in danger, they're innocent, they're in harm's way, yes, but David Koresh is not holding a gun to their heads and threatening to kill them every five minutes if they don't shut the hell up or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, on April 1st, Arnold and Tabor were interviewed by radio talk show host Ron Engelman on KGBS to discuss the situation at Mount Carmel Center. Tabor said that the Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament from prison and, in a similar manner, Koresh's message would reach a wider audience if he surrendered peacefully, even if it meant going to prison. On April 4th, a tape recording of the broadcast was delivered to David Koresh by Dick Dagerin, Koresh's lawyer. According to David Thibodeau, an eyewitness inside the compound, Koresh's Koresh exhibited a favorable response upon hearing the tape. 
As the siege wore on, two factions developed within the FBI, one believing negotiation to be the answer, the other force. Increasingly aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out. For instance, deep sleep deprivation of the inhabitants through all-night broadcasts of recordings of jet planes, pop music, Buddhist chanting, and the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. Outside the compound, nine Bradley fighting vehicles carrying M651 CS tear gas grenades and ferret rounds and five M7728 combat engineer vehicles obtained by the U.S. Army began patrolling. The armored vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing and outbuildings and crush cars along the Branch Davidian, belonging to the Branch Davidians. Armored vehicles repeatedly drove over the grave of Branch Davidian Peter Gent, or Gent, despite protests by the Branch Davidians and the, and the negotiators. So, this sleep deprivation. I have done this. It fucking sucks. Yes. Um, this, this is what they, when you go through any kind of torture training, anything like that, sleep deprivation is one of the things that they do. Um, actually, the rabbits being slaughtered are very common because it is a horrible sound. Um, and the my issue with this is the children. If there were no children there, then I can see this being okay. But again, you're getting a little more aggressive and you still have children there. Obviously, Koresh is claiming that they're there of their own free will. I doubt that. They're children. Well, they don't have a choice in the matter. They're exactly. going where their parents set. Also, just in a pragmatic standpoint, you want David Koresh to surrender. Yes. That's the goal of this. What you're doing, this is a siege mentality. David is not gonna run out. Why would he why would anybody run out into this? I mean, he's got look at it from where he's looking. And again, I I, I still maintain if he had just freaking sat down in his freaking lobby of his thing and just waited for the atf to show up none of this would happen but now look at it from his point of view he is in his home this is his home and he is seeing an ar an army outside his door with tanks he doesn't he's not a, i know caleb and yes. i know the difference if, this is these aren't would, tanks if you would please i'm gonna i'll let you do the obviously i know what they are but I'll let you do the explaining of what the Bradleys are, the tear gas ferret rounds, and the engineer vehicles. So Bradley fighting vehicles are a, um, they're an APC, armored personnel carrier. The Bradleys are made to um, move very fast across the uh, battlefield, get a squad of soldiers to the objective safely, and you know, carry out and achieve the mission. To um, non-military members, though, it looks like a fucking tank. Yes, it looks like a tank. This, I mean, it does, the Bradley does come with attachments that can take out a tank. <laughs> yeah, it does. Tow missiles, love yeah. them, tow launchers. But this isn't what they had there, so this is a Bradley that's been stripped down to just shoot tear gas. But again, what is David Koresh seeing? He's seen tanks outside his room. And then he sees, um... And then, just just so you know, the ferret rounds for people that don't know, they are gas grenades that are meant to penetrate windows, hollow doors, interior walls, and stuff like that. 
So now again, now with the M72A combat engineer vehicle, this is now don't let this the it's name easy. fool you. This is a tank. This, this it has the chassis a of a tank. It's it's does it has all the features of a tank. The only difference is is that it's not meant to um it is not meant to fight. You you uh, this thing will be destroyed in a heartbeat if it goes against a tank. What it's meant to do is is to breach and clear obstacles on the battlefield. It's armored like a tank because it's supposed to be able to, you know, go right up to an enemy trench or defensive facility uh, positions, clear the way so that the actual tanks and the infantry can all pour, pour through the breach in the line. But again, David, this, this is, you see these tanks are going around, just crush his car, their cars. So I, I bet you, yeah, they're, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure they were very happy about their cars getting crushed, which again, I don't understand what the whole point of it was. I think at this point, the tactical commanders of the FBI are thinking they're trying to piss these guys off. They're trying to break their spirit. And reality, again, you're, you're just reinforcing the trench. They're not coming out at this point. No. Why would they? I They're not. I would. I, what, yeah, I, no. I'm trained in this, and I wouldn't fucking come out. I, I, there's, no, there's nothing that David Koresh has that can fight this. He's not going to surrender. Who will, I mean, he, and again, to, to go back to what the biblical scholars are saying, and I think we also touched on what they, what they say the cult mentality is, this is an apocalyptic Christian cult who thinks that, oh my God, the, the end times are here. There's tanks out there. There's an arm, there's an army outside. They've got tanks. They're shooting tear gas in there and they've killed people. The end times are here. The Antichrist has come for us. We must defend our home. So it's it's really like I I would if I was looking at the FBI tactical agent, I would just I'd probably say it's like like tell me, sir, is your head up your ass for the warmth? At this point, with all of this, you might as well just blow them to fucking smithereens. Seriously, get that special, day. get those special forces guy in the line on the line and have them call an airstrike because yeah. no, they're, they're not coming out. They're not coming out. Um, so, <clears throat> two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Eventually, the FBI cut all power and water to the compound, forcing those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled MREs. Meals ready to eat. Listen, I, I'll eat MREs willingly. That's just me. I like MREs, so I wouldn't be complaining. But um, criticism was later leveled by Schneider's attorney, Jack Zimmerman, at the tactic of using sleep and peace disrupting sound against the Branch Davidians. The point was this. They were trying to have sleep disturbance and they were trying to take someone that they viewed as unstable to start with and they were trying to drive him crazy. And then they got mad because he does something that they think is irrational. Very well put. Despite the increasingly aggressive tactics, Koresh ordered a group of followers to leave. Eleven people left and were arrested as material witnesses with one person being charged with the conspiracy to murder. The children's willingness to stay with Koresh disturbed the negotiators who were unprepared to work around the Branch Davidians' religious zeal. 
However, as the siege went on, the children were aware that an earlier group of children who had left with some women were immediately separated and the women arrested. During the siege, several scholars who study apocalypticism in religious groups attempted to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used by the government agents would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were part of a biblical end-of-times confrontation that had cosmic significance. This would likely increase the chances of a violent and deadly outcome. The religious scholars pointed out that the belief of the group may have appeared to be extreme, but to the Branch Davidians, their religious beliefs were deeply meaningful and they were willing to die for them. Koresh's discussion with the negotiating team became increasingly difficult. He proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ and had been commanded by his Father in Heaven to remain in the compound. From April 5th until April 13th, Koresh refused to speak to the FBI, citing observance of the Passover holiday. FBI planners, growing increasingly impatient, considered using snipers to kill David Koresh and possibly each, uh, possibly other key Branch Davidians. FBI voiced concern that the Branch Davidians might commit mass suicide, as it had happened in the Jim Jones, Jim Jones Jonestown complex, which we covered before. Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans for mass suicide when confronted by negotiators during the standoff, and people leaving the compound had not seen any such preparation. Um, now, we can do one of two things here. We can either stop now and do a second part, or we can do an extended episode. We can do a second part. Okay. So, I want to stop here and do a second part. With that, everybody, um, we are going to end here. We will do a second part. This is we have quite a bit left. Um, this is we got into this a little deeper than I thought we would. Um, not a bad thing. Not a no, bad thing. Not there's, at a all. Lot, there's a lot. Not there's at a lot. All. There's so, a lot here, and there's still a lot left. Um, but yeah. So with that being said. Um, I want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>